18 in uh, 1 Kings. And so our passage, um, either in your bulletin or if you brought a Bible, it is at the first quarter of the book. God's word. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, the troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel, and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different options? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. And Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men's, men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull over the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first for you are many and call upon the name of your God but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves, as their custom was, with sores and lances, until blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to the people, Come near to me. And the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones according to the number of the twelve tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two sihas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let no one escape and seize them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook of Kishon and slaughtered them there. The word of the Lord. 
Looks like we're going to have some rain as background noise today in this sermon. Uh, we have a, I think we have a metal roof, so I don't know what's going to go back and forth. Um, they can turn me up, though. Um, try to be a little louder than the rain. Um, <clears throat> I'm Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church. And um, as Steve said, we are back in the Book of Kings this week. Last week, we celebrated Easter celebration of our Lord Jesus' resurrection from the dead and how because of that, as we saw last week, all we do is win. As all he did was win when he rose that day. This teaching from Kings um, that the Lord has appeared is about how the Lord has appeared and come and shown himself victorious as is, is once again, rather, central to our lesson, a victorious Lord. Between this week and last week, it is not too far-fetched to think that maybe, just maybe, God is trying to tell us something. Maybe that what the people in this story came to realize and recognize, that the Lord, He is God. He is God. So the people in this passage, um, as we've read about, uh, were in a bind. It hasn't rained for three, hadn't rained for three and a half years. And when stuff like that happens, it is time to cast blame, to, to hold somebody accountable, to throw shade on somebody's God or someone's bad behavior for, for why the divine won't open up the sky and let it rain. Because people are dropping like flies, I'm sure, and the flies are getting fat on the dead bodies. It, they need rain. And it has come down to this. King Ahab is blaming Elijah and his lack of respect for the Middle Eastern god Baal. And Elijah is blaming Ahab, King Ahab's lack of respect for the God of Israel of whom he reigns over. And there is only one way to settle the dispute. A straight up old fashioned prayer meeting battle. Right? That whosoever God comes through in answering prayer and sending fire from heaven is the one who deserves respect, praise, and whosoever doesn't, they and their prophets need to be silenced for good. And when they gather at Mount Carmel for the show, showdown between the God of the Bible and Baal, who is basically the so-called, so-believed God of weather, who sparked and stimulated for fertilization and production of crops. The Bible says the people are gathered. Yes, the God of the Bible's people, the Israelites. And that Elijah the prophet lets them know that, that they have been wishy-washy in their devotion and faithfulness to their God, even in the face of a, of a drought. Maybe they're wondering, what has God done for me lately, right? It's been three and a half years of no rain, you know. And, and King Ahab, he won the last election and all. And the Bible says, therefore, they are silent in the challenge to choose between Baal and their God. And we'll come back to the silent thing. But it tells us something. Their faith, their hope, their prayers... Their power for living, their living relationship with God had gone silent, had gone cold, had gone dry. They were living in the middle. 
between two gods. They were halfing it, right? They were unsure. They, they just wanted to go with the thing or God that gave them results, with the God who would give them what they want and give them what they need, right? I'm afraid that in our world and lives and even here this morning, the middle of all sorts of messed up and troubling things going on in our world, your world, my world, there is uncertainty and silence. Because you and I may be living and believing that there is nothing or no one showing up for us. Or we are playing a spiritual back and forth where we are in or out depending on the circumstances. Or we are giving ourselves sometimes uh, unintentionally to what and who is no God at all. And I know it can be hard to see sometimes. You know, um, past the drought and hardships and smoke and mirrors of power and struggle in this world. But there is a real God, and he has shown up and is here. And this passage shows us that by exposing that first, most of us live in a false reality. That secondly, most of us live with a false faith. But finally, all of us can truly live because the Lord is God. First, we live in a false reality. Secondly, we live with a false faith. And finally, we can all live because the Lord truly is God. So silence, right, is a central theme of this passage. And it speaks to the reality that most of Israel and now most of our world lives in today. A, a false reality where, where we are depending on or, or being driven by what is a non-God, not God. And then are tempted to make that non-God, not God thing or person the Lord. Elijah challenges God's people for their non-committal silence. I heard someone say on Sports Talk Radio that millennials would call it they're being Kardashian with their spiritual commitment, right? Back and forth between many opinions. But Elijah is like, it's either God or something or someone else. And Elijah is out to show what we should know that something or someone else, if it isn't the God of the Bible, is a non-God. And there and its silence proves it. So the challenge is simple. Take a bull, build a very flammable altar. Remember, there's no rain, hadn't been no rain, for, had been no rain for three and a half years. It should help. And then ask your God to answer with fire. And it's funny that Elijah picks fire, giving the prophets of Baal not only a numerical advantage of 450 prophets praying, but a method advantage. Since Baal, right, was a god of thunder and lightning, it would be like... Clemson issuing a challenge to the national championship UNC Tar Heels and saying we are going to decide over foul shots. Our centers against your guards, right? Why would you do that? Well, Elijah does it. And the Bible says this is what happened in verse 26, if you look there with me. And they took the bull, they, the prophets of Baal, that was given them and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no one answered. They limped around the altar that they had made. 
And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after the custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out, of, out, out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Baal was a divine flop, right? Not because Baal was not a good idea. Sure he was, right? A god of thunder and, and fertility, right? And, or, or, or he was a really creative character in folklore. Or, or it isn't because Baal didn't make sense in the minds of people because Baal wasn't relevant for the generation. Or that Baal wasn't popular or because he wasn't historically one, one, the, the one successful kings turned to. Or, or because Baal and his cohort of gods didn't make things pretty enjoyable and lucrative with his allowed and encouraged sexualized temple worship incentives. Everybody knows an economy that has sexuality for sale as one of its biggest commodities will always be bullish. Ask the hotel chains what makes money in those hotel movie rentals, right? It isn't for any of these reasons that Baal was a divine flop. He was a pretty good, you know, philosophy or choice, right? It was because Baal was not divine and certainly not God. And yet Ahab and the country had built their lives around him who was not much more again than a theory, a statue, a feeling, an economic and political philosophy, a pleasure, a look, a fashion, a cultural fad, sensible and reasonable even in some ways, and easy to explain and control design. And they, like most of us today, were at least tempted to make what was not God their Lord, making a non God, the Lord. And by Lord, I, I mean the thing or person that takes what's beyond our reach, like the thing we're longing for, what me, might be out, up there, right? Our dream or vision of what our life should be. The, the Lord is the one who can make it happen down here. The conduit the deliverer, the supplier, being Lord means not just being the one, again, who sits up there, but the one that is involved down here. So these Baal worshipers took a non-living creation of their own minds and desires and hopes and fantasies and then tried to make that non-God make their lives work. And that doesn't work. Look at this. They're calling Baal with everything they have. And we'll get back to that. And here especially what Elijah says to them in verses 26 through 29 once again. It says this, And they took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it and called in the name of Baal from morning unto noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar they had made, and at noon Elijah, the Bible says, mocked them. And what does he say? Cry aloud or cry louder, for he is God. For, for, for he is a God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And it says, nothing happens. Elijah mocks them. 
My sons say, he roasted them, right? Back when I was growing up, we would say, he cracked on them. Because they're God, right? Let me say, even if he is real, let's just say for argument's sake, he's a real God. He still can't deliver and answer their prayers or be what they imagined or cast him to be able to do for them because he might be more like a human than he is like a God. He's sleeping. Or as he's saying, on the toilet, maybe reading a magazine or on a trip, right? Or that, that, that would be somewhat not too far for, for, from some of their um, ancient God stories, right? Where, where gods were like soap opera characters or movie stars of the day. And the prophets back then would report or formulate stories on the gods to make sense of, of why things were happening in this world. It was like a divine TMZ or, or Instagram report, right? Where they would be like, Baal was out with so-and-so uh, female god, and they had a fight. Which she started acting up, and he got buck, and that's why we had a storm last night, right? So Elijah is like, you're a god who is not a god, and even if he were, he can't be Lord because he is caught up in some drama or love triangle up there or constipated and stuck where he is or doesn't love you or think you're important or really doesn't have any personal feelings for your situation or your cries because, frankly, what is being proved here is that any God but the God of the Bible is not truly a divine person. Maybe a personality. Maybe a persona. Like an idea, idea you've come up with playing the role of a God who is Lord. Their calling on Baal would be like coming up to Hugh Jackman on the street and asking him to show you his Wolverine claws. It's made up. He's not a superhero. He just plays one on TV. I'm sorry, guys. Wolverine isn't real. Most of the things you and I long for and look for and give our lives to and for and give our energy to and even our prayers for and to are not God. The time you spend on whatever cannot deliver you and deliver us and deliver in and for a world because what they are non-gods that we have made Lord in our lives. Stuff like money and sexual pleasure and security and beauty, having a husband or a boyfriend or intimate relationships or the feeling or desire to be wanted and loved, a nice car or being able to be fast and furious in that car, right? Respect and acceptance and feeling good about yourself and changing the world even for the good, right? We chase and dance and earnestly devote ourselves to all of those things. If we look at the hours of our day, if we look at what we spend our money for, if we look what, what we watch on TV, right? We earnestly devote ourselves to all of those things and yet they don't have a face really. They don't have a divine personhood. And they can't deliver in our time of need. We run to them and use them or hope in them when we are dry and hurt and down. But most of what we in the world are living and dying for is not looking for or running for you. Is not able to look out 
and for you. It's not able to comfort you, right? It doesn't sit in a place of divine authority. It is silent unless you speak for it because it is not a God and not the Lord. When we live according to a false reality with something that is not a God or or try to make that non-God Lord, it will result in a life that is built on a false faith. A false faith, which can be explained in two ways here. It, 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 it's a faith that is built according to the circumstances and a faith that is built on our performance. Look again at the beginning of this chapter, verses 20 and 21. It says here, so Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Elijah calls them out for their vacillating, right? And, and they, they can't give a commitment and won't acknowledge who, who God is when asked. And the passage gives us a hint as to why. Look back at verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you trouble of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have in your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now therefore send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Simply put, you can't understand why they won't speak. Their faith in God was troubled. Why? Because the circumstances were not right for them to call one thing God and another thing God, right? It wasn't right for them to choose one God over, over the other. With 450 prophets backing a murderous king and queen, and with there being no rain for three and a half years, no one is willing to choose a God in that circumstance. But here's the rub. Baal which is no real God at all, is thought of being the God of weather in a time when money and wealth and stability come from an agrarian farming society. Baal is the popular, convenient God of choice for the circumstance. He is the God who may make the most sense considering the circumstance. Baal is a God of the right circumstance. It is only God when the circumstances are right for him to be God. And the faith of people gets shaky and, and slippery and false in that. Because how can something be God only when the circumstances are right for it or him or that thing to be trusted and followed? If your reason for living, your bottom line drive Let's call it your God is only God when the weather is right or the account is right or you are getting ahead or feeling good about yourself or being successful or in a romantic relationship or when and, and, and if the right person is, is in office, right? That reason, that thing, that season, that up or down, that good, that God is not God, and it leads to a false faith that is based on what the circumstances say. And look how this false, circumstantially good faith with a circumstantially faithful God plays out for the prophets. It ends up being built on their performance, 
and not the performance of their God. Look at these prophets and how they believe they will get their God to answer them. Back again at verse 26. We'll read it again. It says, and they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. And no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is missing again, or he is relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And, and, and again, in the shadow of these doubts that, 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 that Elijah throws at him, it says this in verse 28. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after the custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out on them. And as midday passed, they raved, the Bible says, on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. I don't know whether you see it, but their faith, their salvation, their hope for rain before a God that is not a God, is actually accomplished in their minds, hear this, by putting the pressure of their God's effectiveness on them, on their being the faithful one in their own problem, by yelling loudly enough, by pushing themselves harder, by being more passionate and driven and sincere and keeping it real and doing what may have worked in the past or doing a new or scientifically or logistically working real hard to make it more possible. And what do they get? Silence. Here's the deal. You and I have made up a test and built an altar on circumstances and all you do is talk about how things can only get better for yourself if you try hard enough, right? Or have the right vision or are determined enough. If your life is built on that kind of thinking, right? Or if God would just do it this way in this time and this way. If you are depending on spiritual games and performances to make or force or manipulate or impress God to be Lord and deliver you, or it is about what you can actually work yourself up and into. And I'm going to tell you, most religions are like this. They only work when you make them work. They're all, God's only good when you are good first or good enough. If you, if it or you will live or die or make it or not make it based on whether you can make it hot or cool or in or out or acceptable in your effort to work, that is a false faith in something and someone that is not and should not be God. If it has to be awakened every morning, or jump-started. If, if, if like these prophets at the end, if you have to lose your life and make others unjustly lose their lives to make it happen, or you have to trade in, like many of us have, our other sense of worth or dignity or demeaning ourselves in some way to make it be stable and secure or make us happy, then that is a false faith and a false sense of worth that shouldn't have the God place in your life. That said, I want you to know this, this is more than some apologetic game where I'm trying to prove that my God is better or best. He's all God by himself, and we'll get to that. 
But this passage is pleading with God's people and with you to not let things run and then ruin your lives by building a life altar around and for it. Whatever is running you will suck the life out of you and others and leave you like it, silent and empty. A real God, the one God, the only God will not do that in your life. Do you see the contrast with Elijah here to make that point closer to us? Look at verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench about the altar, as great as wood contained two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And the time of the offering of the oblation, uh, at the t- and at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Isaac and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that, O Lord, that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. The Bible says, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Let me break it down a little bit. This amazing miracle was not based on Elijah's performance. But by building the altar, as it says, with the tribes of Israel in mind, Elijah was was telling a story, if you will, using the stones of God's faithfulness and responsiveness and being God for his people through all sorts of circumstances and things. This was about God's promises that they didn't ask or earn or work for, but what God had given them. And then he makes this non-circumstance-based things where no one can say it worked because he made the circumstances right. He covered the altar with water in every part. And think about this. He used a lot of water during a three-year drought. He is saying it is not about how and what we value or think what makes valuable makes things valuable or will keep us alive. He is letting us know that redemption is not about our ability to control God and control the circumstances. Now remember the main issue is the lack of rain. But this is what Elijah appeals to. God bringing down fire from heaven and possibly rain later to the drought. It's all wrapped up in the same unwavering will of God from the beginning. That the world would what? Know that God is God and that his desire is repentance and glory and honor. And in that, our good. This is not about a prayer for rain. 
Or a prayer for fire. God, bringing fire from heaven is nothing for God, right? Real, true faith in the real God is always about God being God and God getting what he wants, his way, and not about you and me having to wake him up or manipulate or impress or puppet him to do what we want or need. I hope you get this. God is always and has always been the initiator of your good. He has always been the one who started the idea that you would flourish. He has always been faithful. As a matter of fact, God came up with the term faithful. Faithful towards your good and flourishing. Understand, that's God's job. That's the Lord's promise. That is God's ability. It is not our doings or not our doings that makes the real God Act like God towards us. But as, but as God, it is always about his divine desire to love and save and serve us for his glory and just show up in the place always what? Being himself. I like to say God is the most secure being in person you'll ever meet. He is never not himself. Even when nothing or anyone else isn't, even when everybody's acting irregular or uncomfortable or silent or stressed, I've said this before, God is going to be him even when you aren't acting like yourself. Let me say this. In this passage, the people of God, the ones called to worship God, are silent. They don't know who they are. In that moment, they don't know what they want to believe in. And they're questioning things and are not prayerful. Here is the grace of God in worshiping a real God. Their silence, right? Our silence. Our lack of faithfulness in our sometimes empty prayer lives like they had. Our confusion all the time of who and what to follow. Our fears and, and wishy-washiness in light of the circumstances does not make the real God silent. Our performance and lack of faithfulness, the dire circumstances, does not stop a real God from being God and loving us and saving us anyhow. When we couldn't see him or pray for ourselves and we're in a bad way and the sky seems shut up and off because we couldn't see any better in our lives and all of us go through it, God sends a deliverer to pray for us. Understand what Elijah's doing. His people won't pray. They're silent. So God sends a deliverer to pray for us. God works out salvation for us. God, because he is faithful, answers for himself, but for a good, our good and our salvation. Why? Because he's God. All by himself. And I like what the singer Candy Staten said. He don't need nobody else but he wants all of us to benefit from his being the Lord who shows up. So Elijah builds the altar. The Bible says that the people's silence is broken and they bow down and, down and declare in verse 39, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And apart from the obvious meaning and emphasizing him that, that Baal is not God 
emphasis on he. He is, the Lord is, his name, and no one else's. But it goes back to what we talked about in the first point, that God is a person who is the one who is powerful to intervene in our lives. And the person, the one who is able to answer us and interact and be personal and is therefore alive is God, is the all-powerful one, is over and in charge of everything. That God, the exalted one, is imminent. He shows and is the hero in our story in life. That God is a Lord, is Lord, and the Lord is God, and no one else. Which means this, the Lord therefore is able to deliver us and to deliver to and of our salvation and hope and power when we need it. Nothing and no one else can say that. Nothing and no one else is Lord or God. Only our God, the God, that, that God is Lord and only the Lord of the Bible of biblical redemption is God. And only that God shows up. So, you know, I didn't gloss, hopefully I didn't gloss over the fact that fire did come down from heaven, all right? For real that day. And it changed as probably it would if fire came down right now. Change and convince some of y'all. Y'all would worship God like never before if fire came and burned this place up. I just want to be out of the way when it happens. It made silent lives speak with hope and redemption and real praise and peace. And it did mean a death of 450 false prophets. And it did mean a kingdom in King Ahab that had to take notice, real notice. The fire on the altar that came to fulfill and consume and take in itself the promises of God. It changed everything as God showed up for real. I'm thinking, as I'm reading this passage, like a lot of you would if you were thinking the same thing. If only more fire would come and burn up stuff, right? Like when I'm starting to doubt God, if he could only burn something. I go in and out. Yeah, I'd be preaching up here, sweating and all. Yeah, I'd be preaching. I'd be talking, but sometimes I'd be silent too, right? Sometimes I go someplace and I, I may be working on my sermon. I don't even pull my Bible out. I don't want nobody to know. I don't want nobody bothering me. I be silent because I'm afraid. I doubt God. I don't have a constant prayer life always hitting the high. No. And sometimes when I'm really doubting him and I'm wondering if he's the real God, look at all the rest of these people doing so well. Why aren't things going good? Like, I'm like, Lord, could you just do something? Right? Could you shoot some fire, some rays out your eyes or something? If he would, there'd be a worldwide revolution, wouldn't it? Our church would grow if we could have fire every week. Did you know that it did happen? Once and for all already, again after this incident? And it still changes everything. Look again at verse 36 for me. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O oh Lord, he's praying to God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that if you are God in Israel and that I am your servant, that I have done all these things at your word, answer me, O oh Lord, answer me, that this people may know what? Not that I'm a great prophet, right? Not 
so my career can advance, not so I can be King Ahab too. So that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then it said, the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and licked up the water. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces. And what did they say? The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Now, I want you to hear this prayer. After hearing the one Elijah prayed, a prayer a thousand years or so later from Christ, Jesus Christ. Listen, when Jesus had spoken these words, he was teaching, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you are given. And this is eternal life. What? Same thing, right? You see in this book that they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you've given me. And now, Father, it says, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Why? Right? So that the world would know you are God. And then listen, what happens on the cross when Jesus does die for our sins in Mark 33? It says this, not Mark 33. <laughs> Uh, the end of Mark in verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Sounds very similar to the time of oblation that, he, that the fire came down here. Elio, Eli, Eli, lemis abakthani, which means my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, and this is really interesting, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this, saw that in this way, he breathed his last, he said this, This, truly, this man is the Son of God. Sounds very familiar to behold what? God, the Lord, he's God, the Lord, he's God. Surely this man is the son of God. Remember how the prophets of Baal cried out in a loud voice to God and cut themselves and bled for Baal to answer them, and he didn't. And then Elijah pointing to the promises of God. God did answer, and only then they could see and worship the Lord as God. When Jesus bled and cried out to God, Scripture says he hollered. This isn't a God, God. No, this is a scream of pain, of desperation. Your pain. Think about the deepest pain you've ever experienced or anyone has ever experienced this earth and multiply it by the times, the amount of people Jesus actually died for on the cross, right? He cried out to heaven with that kind of loudness, that kind of pain. And in John passage I read, pray to God for and concerning you and me like Elijah did. He was uh, not unlike what some of the bystanders thought. He was calling on Elijah. But like Elijah, right? He was calling down God to save you and me from the silence between us and the real God and when we couldn't break the silence because of our sin. God answered Jesus from heaven for us. 
and redemption was accomplished. Understand that in his death, Jesus put himself on the altar and he bled and he cried down heaven's fire on himself. He worked salvation for us in a way our attempts, like the Baal prophets, would fail. And when he did, he was burned up by God, consumed by the wrath of God. And in that act, his prayers, even now, the Bible says, as he is like our forever divine Elijah, praying for God's intervention for us from heaven. Jesus, the Lord God, come in the flesh, now enables silent and blind people like you and me, wishy-washy, to end what Jesus did and coming, living, dying on the cross and rising from the dead. Now we can see that God has shown up and showing up in our world and in our lives and in our hearts. And what this means, you can stop killing yourself for what isn't God and can't save you. You can stop living for what doesn't live for you. And you can stop giving so much, for giving so much for something that has not given nearly what the Lord who is God has given up for you. Our prayer and hearts don't have to be silenced with fear and uncertainty anymore because you doubt because you live in circumstantial issues. You and I can come now and turn back to God because of Christ right now and always. We can rest from our work trying. We can stop putting things central that shames us. Some of y'all are living in some serious shame and condemnation caught in all kinds of sin because you're trying to find pleasure and hope in desperate times. I know sometimes I am. Things get desperate. You can stop now. You can rest now because the Lord, right? The Lord Jesus. He is God. He is God. He is God showing up for us. Rest in him. He's the real God who's shown up. Let's pray. We're stuck in all kind of condemnation. Sometimes, Lord, we're even afraid to hear ourselves say, doubtful things and, and fearful things. We're silent. Lord, thank you that Jesus' blood speaks. That he intercedes for us. That God came down and showed himself to us. Now, Lord, enable your people who are often wishy-washy in their faith. I pray right now that you allow those who don't know you in a world of 
a lot of drought, a lot of issues, a lot of problems. See Christ right now, Lord. As clearly as they saw fire come down from heaven, Holy Spirit, I pray like a mighty rushing wind, like we saw after Jesus ascended, Lord, that, that, that we saw a mighty rushing wind of the Holy Spirit coming. I pray, Holy Spirit, right now, I ask that you would shower down salvation and hope and power from heaven on the silent and hardened hearts of people in this congregation under the sound of my voice, Lord, please. We pray that you would deliver them from the bondage of performance, of ha having to make acceptance work for them, of having to make economics work, Lord, and finances and this and that, Lord. I pray that you would be God, a God who delivers. This I ask and pray in Jesus' name, amen.